Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Well, we are going to be moving on to our last characteristic that is mentioned in verse 8. Thus far, we've actually covered the first two. The first being, we have dreamers defiling the flesh. Last week, we looked at the second one, which was they reject authority. This third one that we're going to move on to today actually goes hand in hand with this second one, with those who reject authority. In other words, if you see somebody that rejects authority, you are certain to see someone who speaks evil against the dignitary. It's an absolute guarantee. They go hand in hand. You can't really have one without the other. You got somebody speaking evil against a dignitary, I assure you, they at some level are already rejecting authority. It's just the natural ebb and flow. It's not a coincidence that Jude would bring these two things, these two ideas, right next to each other. It's very intentional. Well, we're going to dig into this today. There's a lot to say about it. First thing I want to bring to the table is this. As you go to the Greek, we look at this. The term for dignitaries is doxis. simply means glorious ones, honorable ones. Now, the interesting thing about this is, is there's a lot of discussion. And I'm going to try to condense it in just a couple minutes. But there's a lot of discussion. What does Jude mean when he says doxis? What is in his mind? What is the context? What is he aiming for? Some would tell you that it's explicitly a reference to the holy angels in heaven. And you have scholars that take that position. You have other scholars that have come on the scene that really stirred the pot and basically said, actually, this is a reference to demons or fallen angels. Like that of Lucifer, of Hasatan. And they come from this position because of the next verse, which um, the good news is we're actually going to get to today in verse 9. And what you're going to see is there's a confrontation between Michael the archangel and the devil. Okay? And they have this out, and, but it, it mentions at the end of the verse that not even Michael the archangel brought reviling accusation against the devil. And so it's interesting, there are some who interpret what's being said here is actually, well, the dignitaries mentioned are in fact would be Lucifer or uh, his minions. And that's what Jude has in mind. So we need to talk about this. And the first thing I I want you to know, the, the, the latter of what I just explained, of attempting to identify Adoxus as someone like the devil or uh, one of his minions, uh, it doesn't work. I mean, that's completely off the table. It doesn't work in the immediate context. It doesn't work in the broader context. And those who come to the table and say, well, this is you know, really talking about angelic beings. I'm going to tell you right now, what Jude has brought to the table goes beyond that. It's much broader than that. It refers to the holy ones of God, to the apostles. It refers to the prophets. It refers to all the men that are like them. And yes, it would even include angelic beings. Today, I want to give you some real-life examples of what Jude is dealing with. So we can walk away in in awe. So we can walk away that when he brings us his table, it's going to mean something. And actually, I'm going to have a little bit of fun today. Because I'm going to give you three examples. Uh, Just in, in light of Jude's 
playful nature of coming out, giving us three historical examples, biblical examples of events that have taken place. Jude builds on that by bringing three specific characteristics. And now I'm going to give you three examples of this third characteristics. Uh, character, yeah. So with that said, the first one I want to give you is not a biblical example. The first one I want to give you is a personal experience of mine. And I was confronted front and center with this situation. A couple of years, several years back, I, uh, I did a debate in St. Paul. And after the debate, uh, it was a closed door debate. After the debate, I got to mingle with some of the people that were there. And I remember speaking with a gentleman who did not appreciate what I had to say. Uh, and just so you know, the debate was over uh, whether or not Christians should keep the law. And I got into this conversation with him, and we got on the topic of Acts 10. And uh, because, and I'm not sure how we got there, but we got on the topic of Acts 10, and he countered something I had said by saying, well, Daniel, you, don't, you, you, you haven't read the Acts, the book of Acts. You haven't, you haven't studied Acts chapter 10. There it is very clear that the Lord commanded Peter to eat unclean food. I mean, he, said he, he was making the position, he was actually stating the position, you are commanded to go eat ham, you're commanded to have shellfish, you're commanded to do these things. And simply, he, he drew this from the vision that, you know, three times the sheets let down, you got all these unclean animals in it, right? And then the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And his message to me was, Daniel... Rise, kill, and eat. You're missing it. You're missing the forest for the trees. And I said, well, that's interesting. Did you read what happens after? See, because the the immediate response of Peter was, not so, my Lord. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. But then he goes on. The text goes on. Once he comes out of the vision, you don't got to go very far. Peter wondered within himself what the vision meant. And I said that to him. And I remember, like yesterday, I I communicated. That's what he said, because Peter didn't take it literally. He was bewildered. He's baffled, and he's looking for an interpretation. How do I understand what I just said? This guy responded, Daniel, Peter is an idiot. This was his response. I kid you not. That's not an exaggeration. I didn't even, I was stunned. Because I'd never heard a Christian take a position against a holy apostle. Which, by the way, Peter went out and raised people who were lame from birth. He walked on water. He raised the dead. Okay? This was a guy who people were trying to get into his shadow so that they could be healed. And he's an idiot? If that's an idiot, sign me up. I want to be an idiot with Peter. If that's how you interpret an idiot, please sign me up. But this was his response, and I literally, the second, I'm looking, I'm squaring the eye, and I'm hit with this passage, and actually, technically, I wasn't hit with this passage, I was hit with the companion epistle. Peter's giving the exact same message as Jude, and I remembered that there would be people who would not fear in speaking evil against dignitaries. This is what's, what you read in Second uh, Peter chapter 2. And I literally told him, I said, well, you got to be careful. Because, you know, what Peter says, that there would be certain people that would not fear speaking evil against dignitaries, and they would speak evil of things they don't understand. How amazing. I I mean, I was done. And again, I tell you, you talk about living the Bible 
We can talk about living in Bible prophecy. We can talk about things, but, but to be confronted literally in, an, in a real life situation where this book is talking to me, where Second Peter is coming off of the pages and I'm witnessing a Christian. He was out to defend the name of Jesus and he's calling Peter an idiot. Now, make no mistake, this was a guy who not was just, wasn't just rejecting authority, the authority of the Lord, the authority of the apostles, he was speaking evil of dignitaries. See, lawlessness will always lead to more lawlessness. It's inevitable. It's an unbelievable experience that I will not soon forget. I'm going to give you another example. I'm going to take you to the Torah. And we're going to go to the book of Numbers and man, these, these hit hard. These, these hit really hard. Numbers 12, verse 1, we read, Miriam and Aaron, uh-oh, they spoke against Moshe. I, I want to tell you, he falls into the category of a doxis, of one of the holy ones, the glorious ones. And now these two are moving against him. This is not going to go well. But we're told as we continue, we're told this. Because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Now I'm going to tell you, unless you understand the historical backdrop, the context of how this came to be, you are not going to appreciate this statement whatsoever. You got to go back to chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, we have mentioning early on that there was a mixed multitude with Israel. The Targums actually utilized the term strangers. They had come out of Egypt, we know this. And guess what this mixed multitude was doing? This riffraff, as they say, some translations translated as riffraff, this riffraff was starting to yield to the flesh. They were yielding to craving. And they were looking back to Egypt going, we remember, we ate fish to the full. We remember the, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. We remember all this. We don't have any of this. All we got is this worthless manna sitting right before us. And we're so sick and tired of it. We just want food. Who's going to give us meat to eat? And this mixed multitude, they're sowing this stuff. They're totally, totally consumed in this complaining spirit. Despite everything God had shown them, despite everything that God had done. And the problem was, that boiled over into Israel. And now Israel begins to complain. And guess what happens? The Lord is enraged, and he moves against them and brings a plague on them. And the people that yielded to intense craving, they died. They were put to death. And then the very next thing we read is, oh, this. The very next thing you read is in Numbers. And now you can appreciate why, you know, Miriam and Aaron are coming against Moses. They're looking, hey, he's married to a Gentile. In their mind, we don't want to see part two of what just happened. They believe they're justified. They seriously do. They believe they're justified in coming again. And this, this is what's so, it's so scary about this. It's so scary that you can have the likes of a man like Aaron and Miriam, who are walking with God, fall into this. In fact, let's just build on this. The very next verse says this. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moshe? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. What, does that sound familiar? Because that sounds exactly like what we read about in regard to Korah. 
I said, don't you understand? The whole congregation is holy, every one of us. And here you have Miriam and Aaron rising up and doing the exact same thing. Now, let me ask you something. You look at this. Is this a true statement? Just look at the statement. Is it true? Has God spoken through Aaron and Miriam? An absolute biblical fact. He spoke through them. Aaron was the Kohen Gadol. You better believe he's going to be hearing from God. He's the intercessor on behalf of Israel. He's the one that's going to be facilitating atonement according to the commandments of God. And Miriam, she's called a prophetess. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is on her. She prophesies. The Lord puts his words in her mouth. And she's, go back to Exodus 15, you'll see it. Both of these are anointed of the Lord. Both of these are in relationship with the Lord. They are close as you can get to the Lord. That terrifies me. Because what we see happening now is now they feel compelled. They think they're doing the right thing. And they're falling into this trap of speaking evil against a dignitary. God help all of us. If it can happen to Aaron and Miriam, do not be deceived. It can happen to every one of us so easily. May God put spiritual duct tape on our mouths and give us wisdom. Amen? Amen. This terrifies me. And that's the whole point, is we're supposed to tremble in fear and watch our P's and Q's and watch our tongues. See, because what what ends up happening here as they do this? Well, it says the Lord heard it, and guess what's going to happen? He calls all three of them, you you come up. And you know what the gift that you're going to receive, that gift that you're going to get if you fall into speaking evil against a dignitary? You're going to receive the plague. Miriam was plagued with leprosy. And that's what happens when you have leprosy of the mouth. When you speak evil against the dignity, when you're careless, but even in their own mind, they thought they were justified. Oh, God, have mercy. Let me give you the third example. And for this, we're going to go to 2 Samuel. And this, in my opinion, it, man, it encapsulates in totality what Judah's bringing to the table. And we read this in 2 Samuel 16, verse 5. Now, when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Shaul, whose name was Shimei, or Shimei in Hebrew, the son of Gera. Coming from there, he came out cursing continuously as he came. Now, here's here's the first thing. Shimei is not a pagan heathen. He's not of the Gentiles. He's not a Hittite. He's not a Perizzite. He's not a Hivite. He's of the tribe of Israel. He's not just of the tribe of Israel. He's of the, he's of the family of the king, who was Shaul, the first king of Israel. And so you, you, you look at this, and, and the situation, we're, we're not dealing with the pagan. But this guy from Israel is coming out and cursing David. And we continue on, and we read the following. And he threw stones at David and all of the servants of King David. I don't know if you heard about, just literally yesterday, came across my desk, a news article, where a Jewish man was stoned by Palestinians. He killed him. I mean, hit him in the head. That's what happens. When you get hit in the head with stones, you die. This guy is literally attempting to stone David and all the servants of David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left, Also Shimei said, thus, when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty rogue, you scoundrel. He is 
speaking evil of the anointed of the living God. He is speaking evil of a dignitary. He is speaking evil of a prophet. David was a prophet of God. He wasn't just king. He was a prophet of God. And here's the thing. What else is Shimei not recognizing? He's rejecting authority. He's rejecting the kingship and authority of King David. And that's what I'm telling you. Everywhere we see somebody is going to speak evil of somebody, well, you better believe they're rejecting authority. Vice versa. Now check this out. As we continue, we read this. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Shaul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. Oh, King David, you are reaping what you should sow or what you did sow. This is what has happened to you. And, and, and look at this. This gets even scarier how he presents this. The Lord, this is Shimei saying this, the Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul. Oh, the Lord has delivered the kingdom into you. And so Shimei, understand, in his mind, there's no ambiguity. This is perfectly clear. He's coming out, and what is he saying? He's saying, I am speaking on behalf of the Lord. What I'm telling you is the truth. All this stuff that you see happening, David, this is the hand of the Lord. I mean, you want to talk about a dreamer. This guy is the essence of what Jude has brought to the table. He's the essence of the very term. In every way, he believes he's justified. He believes he's working on behalf of the Lord, and yet he's rejecting authority, and yet he's speaking evil against the dignitary. But he doesn't see it. He doesn't see this at all. Well, look at how this pans out. In 2 Samuel 16, verse 9, Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. You know, the, the great men of David, they're looking at us going, We've had enough. This guy deserves to die because, and see, Abishai, at least the one thing he recognizes, he is cursing the king. He's speaking evil of a dignitary. He deserves to die. Now, here's the thing about the story that is really interesting. David says, stand down, Abishai. Leave him alone. If the Lord has sent him to curse, let him curse. You read a couple chapters later, get to chapter 19, Shimei has a change of heart. He comes and he repents. He says, I have sinned. Oh, forgive me. See, because David is firmly established as king. Absalom is dead. And so all of a sudden, this magical change of heart. You know, I wonder what he was thinking of all this, thus saith the Lord stuff. I wonder what happened to that. It turned into, no, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Now, if you were to stop in chapter 19... Man, it would be, that's, a, that's, a, that's a nice story. Unfortunately, the story doesn't stop there. you got to go into kings. And what do you discover? This is what's so scary. David, one of the last things he commands Solomon to do before he dies, is he says, brings Shimei's gray head down to the grave in blood. You know how he cursed me. This was one of the last wishes before he died that he gave to Solomon because he spoke evil against him. Again, I mean, I hear stuff like that, and it terrifies me that this stuff can happen as we, get, as we start to embrace delusion, 
and we just start to run at the mouth, God, have mercy. May we all bite our tongues for the sake of salvation, right? So as we look at Jude 1.8, and we look at Jude going through these defiling the flesh, rejecting authority, speaking evil of dignitaries, man, you want to talk about weighty. This is weighty. And Jude is intent, and I've been very clear on this from the get-go. His intent is to scare the death out of you, to scare the sin out of you. And mission accomplished, Jude. It's working. I mean, these words that he's speaking, they're serious. Now, Jude is going to go on to give one of the most incredible examples that you could possibly conceive. He goes on in verse 9. He says, Yet Michael the archangel... In contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moshe, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. See, Jude really thought about his next words as soon as he got done saying, they speak evil of dignitaries. He thought about them carefully. Let me put up Peter's version. Just to show you, Peter's preaching the same message. But Peter says, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Notice anything different? They're teaching the same thing. Let me be clear. They're teaching the same thing, but there is a difference. Peter uses a very generic term to refer to angels. Well, that has weight to it because we know angels are in greater power and might than us. They're much higher in that regard. No question about it. The Bible's clear on that, right? God, what is it, Psalm 8, made man a little lower than the angels? Okay, so we got that. Jude doesn't use the generic term that Peter uses. He gets hyper-specific, and he draws one angel, Michael, and he draws this particular event between him and Satan coming together, or going at it, I should say. You know, I, I think we, in, in this generation, unfortunately, Christendom on, on some levels today is at a real disadvantage when they're reading passages like this. And what do I mean by that statement? What I mean is, is I can tell you for certain, in the first century, these Messianic Jews, when you brought out Michael the archangel, a whole lot of things started rolling through their mind. They knew who he was. And see, Jude is trying to hit a mark to make you literally stumble, fall on your knees in humility before God. This is the intent of the statement. It is that strong. To help you appreciate where he's coming from, I want to talk about Michael a little bit. So you can get a little perspective of who it is that he's brought to the table. And the way I want to do this is, I want to take you to, it's only apropos, that I would take you to the book of Enoch. Because Jude relies heavily upon this book in his little epistle. And you'll, you'll understand why he even brought Michael and why he would have thought. The book of Enoch is filled with Michael the archangel. I want to show you just a couple passages. We're going to start in Enoch 40, verse 1. And after that, I saw thousands of thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. I saw a multitude beyond number and reckoning who stood before the Lord of Spirits, Enoch is giddy. He's taken up in this vision, and he's going into the throne room. He's going into the kingdom of God. He's about to see things no man can handle. And after that, I asked the angel of peace who went with me, who showed me everything that is hidden, who are these four presences? 
which I have seen and whose words I have heard and written down. It's amazing. Enoch gets brought into the throne. He's looking at the throne. And what he recognizes is there are four presences around the Lord of Spirit, on one on each side, in the front, the back, and on both sides. And he's captivated. Enoch is drawn into these presences. He hears their words. He hears them blessing the Lord of Spirits. And it's interesting when you read chapter, I didn't put it up here, but Enoch records their words, records the words that they're saying. It's unreal. They're blessing the Lord. So powerful. But Enoch, that's not enough to hear their words. He needs to know who they are. See, these are the, these are the angels closest to the throne. These are the one in the innermost sanctum. He wants to know their names. Well, the angel's going to tell him. And get this. The first one is Michael. It's Michael. The very Michael that Jude is bringing to the table. It's Michael the archangel. Now, if that wasn't stunning enough, wait till you see his full name or how he's described in title. He's described this way. The merciful and long-suffering. Now, you've got to understand something here. This is one of the most unique moments that you will be confronted with in the context of angelic beings. Normally, when we talk about angelic beings, what are we given? We're given attributes that they were glorious and they were beautiful and they had bright light or their activities. How often are you told about their heart? How often are, do you see actual personal characteristics being described in regard to an angel? See, this brings our understanding of angelic beings into a whole nother world, into a whole nother realm. See, because for Michael to be called this, he has a heart and he is choosing to be merciful. He is choosing to be long-suffering. Now, this is interesting because you go to Exodus 34, right? Verse 6, the Lord comes to declare to Moses who he is. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious and long-suffering. I mean, the very first attributes that, is, that is God himself describes himself. These are the very attributes Michael bears in his title. And more than I could tell you right now, I mean, long-suffering, it's a fruit of the Spirit. Yeah, right? You think of, what, what is it, James chapter 2? Judgment is without mercy to him who shows no mercy. Yeshua in his prayer tells us, if we don't show mercy, if we don't show compassion and forgive our brother, we will not be forgiven. Because he's the God, I will, I, I will show mercy to those who have shown mercy. It's interesting. We're, we're supposed to bear this characteristic. We're supposed to bear this title like this. But it's just fascinating how he is described here. Now, we're not done. Moving on, we read this. Michael, one of the holy angels to wit, he that is set over the best part of mankind and over chaos. Oh, now we get to see power and the kind of authority that this angel wields. He is set over chaos. What does that mean? It means war. Michael the archangel is set over war, and he's set over the best part of mankind. Well, how do we understand that? Well, the book of Daniel helps us out. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince, the archangel, who stands watch over the sons of your people, over Israel, the best part of mankind. So here's the deal. As Hamas is lobbying over 4,000 rockets into Israel, guess who's looking on? The merciful and long-suffering Michael, whose heart is burdened for Israel. He, God himself, Yeshua, has commanded him to be a watcher over Israel. 
He loves them. I mean, you look at this. This is, this is amazing. This is who Jude is describing. When we go back to Enoch, we read this. And the Lord said to Michael, Go bind Samjaza and his associates who have united themselves with women so as to have defiled themselves with them in all their uncleanness. And we already read that passage. But it was Michael. Who did God send to bring them into judgment? It was Michael. This is who he's looking to do. Building on that even further, going back to the book of Daniel. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. This is one of, this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, one that has ministered to me over and over again, showing the power of prayer when it is embraced with humility and faith. Where angels of heaven are being commanded to come. And isn't it interesting? This is just a side note. The angel that has come to tell Daniel, to communicate to him, was none other than Gabriel. And here's why that's interesting. Remember those four presences that stand closest to the Lord, that surround the throne? Gabriel is the third one mentioned. You have Raphael as the second and Phanuel as the fourth, with Michael being the first. And so here you have one of the surrounding angels, one of the presences, coming to Daniel himself. Now, this gets crazy. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, many look at this as simply a metaphor for Hasatan. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. Oh, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. I mean, you want to talk about glorious in power and might, Gabriel's over his head. He's going toe-to-toe with Hasatan. Who gets sent? Michael, the archangel, to take care of business. And guess what happens? Success is brought. That's who this guy is. Revelation 12, 7. A war broke out in heaven. Oh, Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. The most iconic war that has ever existed which existed in the kingdom of heaven when Satan tried to take it over, who did Yeshua send out as his general to take care of business? It was Michael. And he went toe-to-toe with Hasatan. Just in, in the very same way where we just seen Michael going toe-to-toe with the prince of Persia, a metaphor for Hasatan. Here we see, in that war that broke out in heaven, it was Michael at the forefront. And not just that, now, as we come to Jude 1.9... We see them coming together again. I mean, this is a repetition, but Michael's always at the front. He's always going to battle. So if you really want to appreciate what Jude is saying, he's saying this, okay, hey, be careful. You know, these dreamers, they speak evil of dignitaries, but you should wake up because not even Michael, the archangel, the highest of angels, Not even he coming against the most evil, most wicked person the universe has ever known. Not even he brings a reviling accusation. Now you want to talk about putting things into context. It kind of makes you swallow hard. It's a tough thing to take in. This this is what I'm saying. Judas, his intention here is to drop you to your knees. And this is where confession and this is where humility and this is where God forgive me, I've been a fool I've acted and played the fool with my mouth. I've not done well. God have mercy on my soul. And you pray that prayer, there is hope for you. 
There is mercy. There is grace. Now, that being said, I want to talk about this verse or the event, the event in and of itself. See, because I can tell you that there's as much conversation, nay, I say even debate about this verse than there was in the previous with the dignitaries. And what do I mean by that? Well, there's really two things that you need to be mindful of here. There's two things we need to talk about. Uh, The first is, what are they disputing over? What really is the dispute? You know, because scholars are looking at, well, they're they're disputing over the body of Moses, and there's a lot of hypotheses. There's a lot of conjecture. Well, it must be upon Moses' death. You know what? Upon his death, they must have fought over the body. Who was going to retain the dead body of Moses? And I'm, I'm just sharing some thoughts with you. This is what some think. There's, there's a debate. What does it really mean? They dispute. Why are they disputing over the body? Why are they disputing over a dead body? And, and some have conjectured that, you know what, Satan came out and said, you know what, uh, he's mine. Moses didn't get to go into the land. Moses uh, had sinned against God, right? I mean, this, the Torah records this. That's why he's not going to go into the land. He didn't glorify the name of, of the Lord. He didn't believe. He struck the rock. He didn't speak to it. And so there was fault. So, so some think that Satan came in and said, no, the, the, he's my possession. I'm, I'm not going to let you take him. And so these are, these are just some thoughts. And the other thing, and we'll get into that. I'll answer that. But the other thing that is interesting about this verse that drives scholars bananas. You can't find it anywhere. This event. In other words, you can go to the Torah. Guess what you're not going to find? You're not going to find this event, what, what Judah's talking about, where Satan and, and Michael are duking it out over the body of Moses. Here's the deal. You can go throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible. You can go throughout the Tanakh, the prophets and the writings. You're not going to find a whisper about it. Go to the Septuagint. You're not going to find a whisper about it. You can go to pseudepigraphic work, like the Assumption of Moses. You're not going to find it. doesn't exist. You can go to the Targums. You're not going to find it. Where in the world does this come from? And so what I want to do is I want to deal with these two things. Uh, these two things of, of where does this come from, which is a lot of mystery and intrigue. I give you that. Uh, and also, what is the dispute over? And so what I want to do is I want to begin by taking you to the Torah and show you what we do have. In Deuteronomy 34, we read the following So Moses, the servant of the Lord, now we're going to find out four things. So I need you to track with me here. Moses, the servant of the Lord, here's the first thing, died there in the land of Moab. And actually, technically, you can go to the chapter before, and we learn he died on Mount Nebo. That's the first bit of information. We continue, according to the word of the Lord, and this is the second bit, he buried him. This is not talking about Joshua. Everybody across the board, whether Jew or even Christian, they're all on the same page on this particular item. And that is that the Lord dealt with his burial. This was the Lord. He jumped in. Israel did not bury him. So this is our second thing we learn here. God himself buries him. But then it goes on in a valley in the land of Moab. So keep in mind, Moses dies on the Mount, Mount Nebo, but he's buried in the valley. And he's buried by God himself. 
Okay? And now we get to the fourth. Opposite of Beit Peor. Here's the fourth thing. But no one knows his grave to this day. No one knows. Can't find it. There's no body. In the sense, there's no body. You can't find the body. That's interesting. And so we're given a lot of information here. Well, let me take you now to the Targums. It's the same passage. We're going to read this, but we're just going to read in the Targums. And here's what's interesting. We're going to get the whole backdrop of what it means for the Lord to bury Moses. This is what we read. Michael and Gabriel. Isn't that interesting? The very two that fought against the prince of Persia. Michael and Gabriel spread forth the golden bed, fastened with Christ-like gems and barrels, adorned with the hangings of purple silk and satin with white and white linens. Metatron, now I don't have time to go into this, but Metatron is this epic, unbelievable angel in heaven. There's a lot of backstory there. I'm not going to get into that. But Metatron, Yophiel, and Uriel, and Yephephiah, the wise sages, laid him upon it. And so you get the target. This is what it means when it says, okay, God buried him. This is the backdrop to it. The angels of God were sent. And I'm talking the most glorious of the glorious. They were sent to take care of it personally. So looking at what is said here, Michael the archangel contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses. Well, even in the Targums, we don't get anything of that. We do get Michael, but there's no contention whatsoever taking place. You can hypothesize about that. But here's where I'm going. It's interesting to me that a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people look at this and they think the point of contention lied about fighting over a dead body. And I'm going to tell you, that's not what the contention was about. The contention was about the angels of God, Michael, coming to get him, to bring him into the kingdom of God, because he was being resurrected. That's the point of contention. I want you to think about Satan for a second. Did Satan have a problem with Yeshua being buried? No problem. No issue there. What? Why did he want guards posted there? Because I don't want the body to disappear. Now what I'm telling you is the same thing, the same effect is coming into play here. And here let, me, let me share with you a passage that kind of helps us out. And it's going to help us out, I believe, In regard to where in the world did you get this? Where is he getting this revelation? I believe he got it during Yeshua's ministry and after. And so, Matthew 17. I didn't put it up here. But in Matthew 17, we have the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeshua brings up a select group. Peter, James, and John. They go up, they see Yeshua, their Messiah, the Savior of the world, totally transfigured before them. And believe me, they are in awe. There's no question in their mind. This is the Messiah. The Father himself said, this is my beloved son. They heard his voice. Hear him. So there's, you know, Peter, James, and John, no question about who they're following. No question about he is the true Messiah. But here's what's mind-blowing. They see Yeshua speaking to Elijah the prophet and to Moses. Now, Elijah, we know, never died there's no surprise if you're, if you're Peter, and he knew who they were. He knew exactly who they were. The, the text is very clear on that. No surprise because he didn't die. The angels come and got him and brought him into heaven. Real simple. But what is Moses doing there? Last time I read in the Torah, 
He was died. No, nobody knows where his sepulcher is, but he's dead. And yet here he is seeing Yeshua and he's seeing Moses and Elijah, the Torah and the prophets bearing witness to the Messiah. Just as Paul talks about in Romans 3, they're bearing witness to the Messiah. And Moses is very much alive. And so you think about that. You'll never convince me that Peter, James, and John walked away from one of the most incredible experiences of their entire life. Now, keep in mind, Peter's a guy who walked on water. He, he, he saw some things. He was a part of some things. There's no way he walked away from that situation, and they didn't talk about it. They didn't, they didn't, I mean, if, if something like that happened to all of us, that's all we would talk about. And we would reason about things. And one of the things you'd be like, Moses is alive. Moses is in heaven. He's with Elijah. He's just, just, and so this is, what I'm, what I'm promoting here and purporting is the fact that where Jude gets this from, I really believe that it was in the revelation of that transfiguration and coming out of that in Yeshua's ministries. Because keep in mind, there were things revealed that had not been revealed until Yeshua came in his ministry. And it is interesting, Yeshua said, don't you tell anyone what you saw. Tells Peter, James, and John, don't you dare tell anyone what you saw. Tell after the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And so there's some cool stuff here that we're looking at in, in regard to this passage. Um, I'm going to close here today.